when I um, make the decision to dive into the free hobby of growing facial hair, um, that's what I tell folks, it's the only hobby I can afford, but um, um, I tend to just grow it, you know, right here out of the chin, and some people ask, why don't you do the, you know, the full goatee or anything like that, and now I know, I can, I'm just getting back to my Egyptian roots, you know, and so, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's wonderful. All right, so this morning we're going to talk about what does it mean to believe in Jesus' teachings? What does it mean to believe in Jesus' teachings? Okay, and I don't have a <coughs> necessarily a big introduction or anything like that, so let's go ahead and roll into point one, and we'll just, we'll just keep going, which is good because uh, the pages are thick today, so, but I'll, 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 get us, I'll get us on track here. So point one is this, okay? To believe in Jesus' teachings, you believe in the teachings of one who is a master of the Scriptures. Okay. <clears throat> I guess I could have provided a short explanation of what belief is. I think a good description would be the, the old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. You know, and so to believe in something is, is that. It's the thing you're standing on, it's the thing you're leaning on, it's the thing you're trusting in, it's the thing you're believing. So that would be a good description. All right, there's my introduction, cool. So point one, you believe in the teachings of one who is a master of the Scriptures. Jesus goes into the temple and begins teaching, and the response from the Jewish people is basically they are gobsmacked, okay? Verse 15 says, the Jews therefore marveled. It's not a word we use much these days, but the word marveled basically just means to be struck with wonder. Something that catches you off guard, something that kind of knocks every word out of your mind and your mouth type of thing. And the reason they, are mar they, they, they marveled over this, we are told, is because Jesus did not go to rabbinical school but he somehow masterfully handled and taught the Torah or the Old Testament Scriptures. You know, and they say, basically, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And so there was something about his teaching that showed he had learning, but he never had a degree or never went to the schools or something like that. So he masterfully handled the Scriptures. Now, there are various reasons why the Jewish people marveled at Jesus' teachings. And we're going to kind of look at a few here. So, a few weeks back, we looked at Matthew 7. Okay, that's the end of the Sermon on the Mount where the conclusion to the sermon basically says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished, kind of the same terminology, at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And we pointed out a few weeks ago that uh, the, the scribes when they taught, or the Pharisees when they taught, you know, at the end of their teaching generally, or at the end of a particular point, they would give this long list of former scholars or rabbis and that sort of thing who, you know, 
affirmed what they were teaching. So they would say, you know, the sky is green. Rabbi Hillel says this, Rabbi Soso says this, Rabbi Jones says this, Rabbi Smith says this, you know, those kinds of things. They would go through this long list of rabbis to kind of point out, because of what they taught, this is true, or this is something you really ought to think about. So Jesus didn't teach this way, but taught from his own authority. He did not seek the affirmation of the rabbinical scholars. And we're going to see more on this in just a second in point number two, okay? So just stick a pin right there, and we're going to keep moving with these uh, responses to Jesus' teaching. In Mark chapter 12, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Herodians would be the kind of the secular, you know, family members or government officials that were connected to King Herod. So the Pharisees and the Herodians went to Jesus to try and trap him in his words. So in Mark chapter 12, verses 14 through 17, it says, And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, <coughs> Excuse me, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, here's a situation where Jesus is not being approached by a strictly Jewish group of questioners, <coughs> where he can kind of say, yeah, those Herodians are stinkers. Don't give them anything. No, he's got the secular government there, the Roman government there, basically, <coughs> and the Jewish government. <coughs> and so, in this case, the people become amazed at Jesus' cunning words, because in verse 17, excuse me, let's see, uh, verse 15, <coughs> Jesus says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, hold on. <coughs> Sorry, I got itch in the throat going on for some reason. I'm not getting choked up because I'm talking about Caesar for some reason. But um, they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, and they marveled at him. So they were kind of like, whoa. I mean, he just kind of busted out the verbal jujutsu there, you know, whatever that word is, and, uh, you know, really kind of just uh, flipped them on that situation. And then a little later in our chapter for this morning in John 7, verses 44 through 46, Jesus uh, is approached by officers of the court to be arrested. Starting in verse 44, it says, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priest and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And I love this response. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. So officers sent to arrest Jesus could not arrest him because they had ears. They heard what he said and could not find a reason to arrest him. And I'm sure kind of this was a combination of all of these reactions that came into play with the soldier's response. I mean, this Jesus is very cunning. You know, this is not the first time with the taxes to Caesar question where Jesus really kind of put the flip on somebody. You have the other situation where, let's say, they came and said, uh, by what authority do you do these things or say these things? And Jesus comes back and he says, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. By what authority does John the Baptist do what he does? 
And they couldn't answer that question because they would sound like they were either pro-John the Baptist, which would have been, you know, against their pharisaical, self-righteous, you know, dealings, or they could say they were against John the Baptist and cause a mob to kind of go after them because everybody loved John the Baptist at this time. So they said, we can't give you an answer. And he said, neither do I tell you by what authority I do what I do. So Jesus is very clever sometimes in in how he answers these questions, these opponents that come to him and try to give him a lot of grief. This Jesus also speaks from his own authority, which is kind of unheard of. He quotes quotes no rabbis, which probably means he had no training. And so with all these things, they were probably amazed he had no training, yet he's super sharp. You know, he's clever, that sort of thing. All of these three reasons, they probably all combined together and they said, there's no way we can arrest this guy. And so no one, including the rabbis, ever spoke like this man. And folks, this is still true of Jesus today, isn't it? I mean, Jesus' mastery of the Scriptures makes His teaching more powerful, more relevant, more pertinent, more important, more advantageous, and more better than teaching from any person at any point in history. That's why when you come to a church, if you attend a different church or something like that in the process of moving and going around, especially military types and that sort of thing, you need to have someone up here bringing you the words of Jesus and not anecdotal stories. Believing in His teaching is believing in the Word of God itself, and so believing in His teaching means you have this master of the Scriptures as the foundation for why you believe. Point number two is this. You believe in Jesus, excuse me, you believe in teaching from the ultimate authority. Verse 16, it says, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. Simple question, who sent Jesus? Yeah, there you go. God. Okay? Who sent Jesus? God. I guess it wasn't a simple question. There was a, there was a pause there. Um, so, simple question, who sent Jesus is God. And Jesus is saying that when He teaches, every word is God's Word. Think about that. I mean, this must have been an unbelievably shocking and scandalous thing to hear from His Jewish listeners. Jesus says, put His teachings on equal plane with the prophets. Jesus has put His teaching on equal plane with Moses. But it's even better than that in a sense, you know, or, or worse, depending on whose side of the, of the, you know, Jesus movement you were on. But remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished because Jesus taught as one having authority rather than quoting all the rabbis who taught the same things. And they reacted this way because at the Sermon on the Mount, you know, in Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, for truly I say to you. In Matthew 5.20, He says, for I tell you. In 5, 21, 22, 27, 28, 31, 32, on and on and on, he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. Chapter 6, verse 25, he says, therefore I tell you. Not to mention that he equated himself with God when he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, and if you go look at that term, Lord, it is a word given to God specifically in the Old Testament. And so, if Jesus were on equal plane with the prophets when He taught, you know, He would start like the prophets did and say something like, thus saith the Lord. But He didn't do that. He said, thus saith me. 
So he spoke with the same authority as the prophets, but he was infinitely superior to the prophets as well. So as God in the flesh who, who spoke on behalf of God, believing in his teaching is to believe in a teaching that has mega authority. Which is why he said in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. The first group he's talking about there, those who speak on their own authority, who's he speaking about probably? Scribes and Pharisees. Yeah, scribes and Pharisees. All right, good job. So the, the, the teachers of the people at that time. But look what Jesus says about the teachers of that time. In Luke 11, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. And later on in Luke 20, he says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts. So Jesus is knocking it home here when he says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. And oh, by the way, the Pharisees are seeking their own glory all of the time. They love walking around the street and hearing, oh, rabbi. They love wearing the long robes, whatever that means. They love the best seats. And I can almost see a Pharisee kind of coming into a, a party or into a synagogue, and someone happens to be sitting in the best seat, and he just kind of stands there and looks at them and stares them down for a while. And they go, oh. As D.A. Carson says, the one who prides himself on being his own man, on speaking on his own, has his ego bound up with his witness. And so, at least in part, he speaks to gain honor for himself. Jesus is quite unlike that. He is totally committed to working for the honor of the one who sent him. <coughs> and because... He was totally committed to working for the honor of his heavenly father, folks. Every word that came out of Jesus' mouth was true. Because in him there was no falsehood, as it says in verse 18. Because he wasn't speaking on his own behalf. He was speaking on behalf of his father. And so his teaching is absolutely trustworthy because it is built on the truth and authority and honor of God. I would say that's a pretty good reason to believe in Jesus' teaching. Number three is this, because you believe in Jesus' teaching, your will is in the right place. Now if your husband is named Will, this is not that Will. I was looking over there, because that's usually where Ari and Will sit, and I was saying, Ari, not your Will. But um, that's not what we're talking about here. Believing in Jesus' teaching means your will is in the right place. Verse 17 says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, <coughs> he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The truth of Jesus' teaching, because there's a way you can take this, that Jesus' teaching, the truth of it, hinges on man's opinion, and that's not what Jesus is talking about here. The, the truth of Jesus' teaching is not determined by man's educated opinions, even opinions as thorough as the rabbinical schools. And folks, remember the, the Pharisees were very thorough. Remember Jesus 
criticizing the Pharisees one time says, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin. Okay, so we're talking about very, very small stuff. And so you can almost see a Pharisee sitting at his table going one, two, three, and counting all of it and, and making sure he gets kind of 10% of all that stuff. The rabbinical school were dedicated to the minutia. But even organizations as analytical as that had no say or sway on the truth of Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching is self-authenticating. This does not mean that the only way to prove His Word is to kind of jump on the hamster wheel of circular reasoning. You've done that before (coughs) as a parent, because I said so as has happened at some point. You know, or, or, you know, you're talking to a child or even an adult and you say, they say, this is true. Why? Well, because it's true. Well, why, why is that? Because it's true, you know, or something along those lines. So, so you can kind of get into that, but it is a fact that no person on earth, and this is really important to understand, no person on earth can discover that his teaching is true as long as they have no desire to do the will of God. You could present volumes of evidence to the disobedient heart, and unless their desires change, they will simply say, but I have all of my evidences. And they prove what you're saying to me is bunk. And again, I just have to quote D.A. Carson here where he says, fallen human beings cannot set themselves up on some sure ground outside of the truth and thus gain the vantage from which they may be able to assess it. Divine revelation can only be assessed, as it were, from the inside. From that perspective, the person who chooses to do God's will discovers that Jesus' teaching articulates it, that Jesus does not speak on his own, but as the Word of God. And so, here is God's truth, here's His Word, and here's fallen man. And they're looking up at that and saying, it's a pack of lies. Well, how do you know? Well, I just know. And they can get in their circular reasonings as well. But if, by God's great grace, God reaches down and picks up fallen man, saves him, and puts him on equal plane with God's truth, and they're walking around saying, this is absolutely true. Let me give you an example. Let's just say a person is sick of their own sin, and no amount of righteous actions could rescue them from their guilty conscience. Well, I give to the charity, and I, you know, I serve at the soup kitchens and that sort of thing, and that kind of makes me feel good for a while, but I just can't get away from this guilt. So you want to be forgiven and, and do what is right. And you discover that Jesus said, for instance, in John chapter 8, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And here's the clincher verse for you. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And you want to be free. So you look at Matthew 11, 28, 29, where Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And you would kill to get some rest right now. 
And then you read John 3, 16 through 18, where Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, <clears throat> that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And it just starts to hit you and your eyes are open. You go, I don't believe in him. I'm condemned. So what do I do? I believe in him. I, I need to trust in him. I need to trust that he is the one that God has sent in order for me to be forgiven. And you knew you were condemned, but you wanted eternal life. And then in John 4, 14, Jesus says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And you want those living waters to gurgle up inside of you and explode in a life that now does the will of God on a regular basis. And so you ran to Christ. And I want to challenge you, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've tried this and that and the other thing to try to escape your guilty conscience, and you cannot get away from it, this is the way to be free. And so, you run to Christ, and you discovered in that process for yourself that these things that Jesus said are true. And it's a lot like the end of chapter 6 that Ken was talking about in his prayer brother. That was amazing. In verses 67 through 69, remember Jesus talks about, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And the people said, this is too hard. We're out of here. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to not believe in me any longer? Do you want to not trust in what I say anymore? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And if you uh, affirm what Peter said there, then you have a will to do God's will above all things, which is right where your will ought to be and needs to be, which is a very, very encouraging thing. Point number four. Because you believe in Jesus' teaching, you judge with right judgment. Jesus now takes the opportunity to lay out basically why people do not see his teaching as true or authoritative. And the short answer is they don't want to do the will of God. You have people who want to do the will of God and they discover that Jesus' teachings are true. And then you have people who don't want to do the will of God, and so they're always going to say, well, it's interesting, well, it's wise, well, it's this, or well, it's a bunch of bunk and a bunch of lies, you know, either way, but they're going to basically reject what it is for what, I mean, reject it for what it is, and say, well, that's not true, that is not authoritative. Starting in verse 19, Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law? Now, this is a rhetorical question, but it is a question that's supposed to draw a response from the crowd, and probably the crowd is going to say emphatically, yes, he did. Because they, they prided themselves on the fact that they faithfully followed Moses, didn't they? Especially the Pharisees and, and you know, the, all, the, all the E's. They, they prided themselves on the fact that they faithfully followed the law of Moses. 
And Jesus says, basically, no, you don't. No, you don't. He says in verse 19, yet none of you keeps the law. What do you mean by this? Well, we'll end it with these three things. Number one, they plan to kill him. Jesus doesn't beat around the bush, does he? I mean, let's start with murder. It's pretty heavy duty. But God's basic law, when he delivered it, the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 13, says, you shall not murder. And Jesus says to the people, why do you seek to kill me? Killing an innocent person, also known as murder. Now, their response is very interesting, not necessarily because of what they say, but because of what is not said. And here's what I mean by this. They tell Jesus, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Now, the accusation of demonic possession possibly during that time was basically an accusation that you are insane. Okay, they may have said you got a demon and, you know, they, they've seen demonic possession and that sort of thing, so that's not necessarily a, an unheard of thing, but they may be saying you are insane. The Jews did the same thing to John the Baptist, called him demon-possessed as well. But there's a real good chance that a lot of people in the crowd actually didn't want to kill Jesus. And so naturally they would respond with, who's seeking to kill you? But if we know for sure there are people in the crowd who did not want to kill Jesus, we also know there are people in the crowd who want to kill Jesus. We have the Pharisees and, and some other of the government officials and that sort of thing. <laughs> we know someone was there, Jewish officials and those who were believing in them, that were plotting to kill him. And this really was their golden moment to speak up, wasn't it? The people come back and say, who's trying to kill you? They could have just immediately just stood up there and said, we are. You deserve death, Jesus. Making yourself out to be God. What are you thinking? Sabbath breaker. On and on and on and on. But there's no record of them speaking up, is there? Their silent cowardice speaks volumes about the guilt Jesus is laying on them. They knew they were seeking to kill him, and according to what this Jesus said, they were guilty. So Jesus describes these murderers well in the next chapter when he says in verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And that's exactly who these people, at least some of them were. The second reason these people did not keep the law is their reasoning for killing Jesus was hypocritical. Their reasoning for killing Jesus was hypocritical. Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of their wanting to kill him for something that they're guilty of doing themselves, right? They say, who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answers with, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Now, the reason he says, I did one work, 
is because when it came to circumcising on the Sabbath, that was a regular practice as long as there was a baby born on the eighth day and it landed on the Sabbath, they were going to circumcise that child according to the law of Moses. Some beautiful little medical stuff in there, but we won't get into that. But, uh, but on the eighth day, a male child being born was to be circumcised no matter what day it was. And that was a fairly regular occurring thing that they did. And Jesus is saying, I've only done this once, and you do this multiple times? So what he's hitting out there. This work, that this one work that Jesus is speaking of is healing of the lame man in John 5 for all intents and purposes. Jesus healed him on the Sabbath and asked him to take up his bed and walk. So here's this man who's probably looking around, looking at his legs, you know, amazed that they work. And, he, and he's carrying his bed. And he kind of gets stopped and confronted and that sort of thing. And so we know from John 5, verses 15 and 18, this is what happened. It says, the man went away, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And verse 18 is key. It says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that is true. Jesus was committing blasphemy by making himself equal with God except in this case it was the truth. He was God in the flesh, so it wasn't blasphemy. But notice it says that they were seeking all the more to kill him. So what that basically means is they are already planning to kill him prior to this confession of him equating himself with God because he was breaking the Sabbath. Even if he totally left that out, about the Father and doing His work and that sort of thing, they would still want to kill Him over this Sabbath issue. So Jesus goes on saying in verses 22 and 23, He says, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. In other words, it went all the way back to Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So Jesus here is using an argument from of lesser to greater. If ceremonial cleansing of one part of the body is permitted on the Sabbath through the act of circumcision, that's the lesser, how much more so should the actual healing of a man's entire body be permitted on the Sabbath, which is the greater? Jesus was basically affirming both of those things were okay. That if the Sabbath clashed with circumcision, circumcision took priority. And if the Sabbath clashed again with mercy, mercy took priority. Which is kind of ironic because it is not merciful at all to want to kill a man for healing a crippled man and telling him to carry the symbol of his infirmity. So that, think about this, every person he passed by would know that he was now healed. What an amazing testimony. What an opportunity to, to re re rejoice 
which is the scary part about this thing, this, this exposing of their hearts that here comes a man with his bed, and instead of consuming joy and rejoicing, your conclusion is, you know, your conclusion to that whole thing is murder somebody. I mean, can you imagine? He's coming to bring in his bed, and they're like, isn't that, you know, whatever his name was, and, you know, and uh, do a cartwheel, do a cartwheel, jump. You know, all these other things, you know, sit down, no, stand up, walk, you know, I mean, it's just all these opportunities to celebrate that this man of, what is it, 30 some odd years can now go wherever he wants to go and do whatever he wants to do. And their conclusion is, let's murder Jesus. And their conclusion was that because they did not want to do the will of God. They did not want to do the will of God. Third and final thing. They had wrong judgment. They had wrong judgment. You might say, no kidding. (laughs) Duh. And that's true, but our our passage ends with Jesus commanding these people to use right judgment. Isn't Jesus so merciful? Can you imagine, you know, he's, he's, he's sharing these things with them, and they're just kind of either rolling their eyes. It, it doesn't say what their response is, but it's not repentance. It's not sorrow. It's not these things. It's silence, prideful Silence prideful silence that they cannot say, yes, you're right, we want to kill you. They can't be honest about that. It's just this, this lying wickedness deep in their hearts. And Jesus turns around and, and, and gives a command, yes, but it is an act of mercy that He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Essentially saying, you don't have to do this. That do not judge by appearances is in the imperative form, but it basically just means absolutely cease judging by appearances. And the Jewish leaders were all about appearances, right? Remember in the last point, we said that the Pharisees tithed of their mint and dill and cumin. And in that verse, believe it or not, Jesus was not condemning them for it. In Matthew 23, 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So go ahead and tithe. You should tithe. But there are weightier matters that you are neglecting because it is more important, and here it is, it is more important to you for people to see you drop a little bit of herbs into the offering collection than it is for a man to have been crippled for 38 years to not carry his bed after he received great mercy to walk again, to never beg again, to go wherever he wanted to go, do whatever he wanted to do. It's more important for some people to see you in all of your self-righteous holiness to drop a few little plants into an offering plate or something like that than it is for a man of 38 years to wait a day, and then maybe Jesus can heal him the day after the Sabbath. 
If those who wanted to kill Jesus were truly concerned about the will of God, they would have approached the Word of God by faith. And in in doing so, they would have, number one, seen Jesus as the Word made flesh, the, the living Word of God. He is the Messiah. He is the master of the Scriptures because He is the living Scriptures. They also would have seen that he, they would have known his words are true and and they have ultimate authority. They would have rejoiced over everything he did rather than ridiculed it. If everything he says is true, that means he's a true person, that means everything he does is true. And if you love the truth, then that is an opportunity to rejoice. If you hate the truth, then you hate what Jesus does. And then the fourth thing, they would have done this because their judgment was based on faith and trust in God rather than self-righteous hypocrisy. It is an incredible blessing from God to believe in the teaching of Jesus, right? And that's, God is so gracious to allow us to grant us, to to read His Word, and to say amen. I mean, to, to have right judgment to determine what is most important or less important, what is right and what is wrong, those are precious gifts. There are people stumbling around saying, My marriage is a mess. What is the right thing to do? And in Christ and in His Word, the answers are there. You can exercise right judgment in how to handle some of the most complex problems if you are all about immersing yourself in His Word and walking around saying, this is all absolutely true. So it is wonderful to have right judgment to determine those things, but most importantly, making right calls about your marriage, absolutely. Making right calls about your lack of marriage, absolutely. Making right calls about your employment, absolutely. Making right calls about your parenting or your childing or your grandparenting or anything like that, absolutely. Making right choices about, you know, driving, not driving, you know, all of these things that require wisdom, all of these things that require decisions, those kinds of things, all of those are fantastic and, 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 and incredibly important, but most importantly, to make the right call concerning concerning Jesus, that He is not a demon, that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that He is faithful and true one, that He is the Holy One of God, as Peter said, that He is the merciful Son of God, that is the most precious gift in the universe. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be in your word this morning together as the body of Christ. Incline our hearts to your testimonies, Lord, and not to any other thing. Open our eyes so that we can see these things, O God. 
Unite our hearts to fear your name, Lord, and establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for you. Lord, if there's someone here that when they are asked about the truths of Christ, they give excuses as to why they don't believe it, or internet evidence as to why it's not true, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them so that you might take them from the lowest point and bring them to the high point of your truth so that they may delight in the truth of your word. Help them, lead them to repentance, Holy Spirit. Convict them of their sin, Lord. May they confess their sin and find forgiveness, O Lord, because your word says that you are faithful, which means you will do it, and you are just, which means you're the only one who can do it, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I pray and ask that you will do just that in the hearts of people that don't know you this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have to hear from you and to hear your truth. And I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.